This episode of the History Files is brought to you by Audible. Visit audibletrial.com/historyfiles to start your free trial membership. Many, many years ago. Building of human rights. The guns at Malta evoke again the echo. In June 1948, all road and rail communication. Some things just aren't easy to explain. The History Files. We bring history to you. Welcome to episode 71 of the History Files, coming to you from the last week of September 2016 here in the wild and woolly Pacific Northwest. Although to be strictly accurate, it's October 1st as we record this. Yeah, this week kind of got away from us. <laughs> yeah, <clears throat> stuff. Just too much stuff. Gordon's work schedule was pretty packed, and then our refrigerator died, so we had to scramble around to find a replacement for that, and it was our... 15th wedding anniversary yesterday which of course we had to do something for um just stuff but anyway here we are better late than never i guess yep so it's the fall movie season which comes before holiday movie season and this week we're going to talk about a fun one the new magnificent seven shoot 'em up if you like a good basic western you're gonna love it if you haven't seen it already of course eh, even then you're probably gonna love it yeah no, we did. We liked it. I mean, it's not perfect, and it's pretty hard to beat the original, but I think they excelled past the original in some aspects, which is kind of fun. But before we get into talking about that movie in this special movie review episode, we're going to cover a couple of media things. This is Hollywood. Sporting cast of thousands. What else came of my trip to the library? Romance, education, entertainment. Our first little spot comes courtesy of John Matthews, and oh, other people have pointed it out to uh, Sarah, let us know, lots of people, because this is a really cool thing. They recently discovered some Roman coins, ancient Roman coins, in an uh, archaeological dig of a Japanese temple, uh, somewhere, I think it's on Okinawa. Which is pretty amazing. Um, I'm going to put a link to an article in the Japan Times in the show notes because I thought they had the best coverage of it. But, yeah, I mean, the Romans got around. There was a lot of international trade during the Roman period. It was a period of um, a great deal of civilization both in China and in Rome. There was actually some contact via intermediaries between the Romans and the Chinese. So it's not too outrageous. What I think is kind of neat is that... Um, Machiavelli notes that and somewhere in the about 1520s, early 1520s, he notes that the Spaniards had found some Roman coins in Mexico, in the New World. Uh, I've never heard any follow-up on that. I haven't hmm. dug deeply into it, but I thought it was kind of cool that Machiavelli, he was sort of smug because he thought that the ancients were far superior to the, the moderns of his day and age. What? He didn't follow the straight line theory of constantly improving civilizations? No, no. He felt that uh, they were pretty much still in the dark ages <laughs> <laughs> and that the ancients, the classical Romans and Greeks were far ahead of them. And in many ways they were, in many ways not. 
I'm guessing we've lost more information than we've gained over the millennia. Probably so. Yeah. All right. Well, that's our archaeological moment. The next up, we're going to, before we get to the review, we're going to pause for a moment for a word from our friends at Battleground Productions regarding season two of the radio drama Brass. And now, ladies and gentlemen, your attention, please. This week, I want to make sure we get the word out about a special project that I happen to be involved in. Message for you, sir. If you're a fan of both radio dramas, a fan of steampunk, or even better, both, get over to iTunes and pick up season one of Brass, a rollicking tale of a family of Victorian geniuses at war with a mysterious crime minister who's organized all of the criminal gangs of London. What's the word? I have a half dozen armed with cutlasses. In season two, the family will try to escape from multiple death traps, only to find that their enemy has further plans for their destruction. So, you know who I am. I do. Weapons out, men! (laughs) If it's a war on crime that they propose, it's a war they're going to get. The continued security and stability of the Empire relies on your efforts. We're in the middle of the fundraising campaign to finance Season 2, and we'd love your support. If brass sounds like just your cup of tea, please consider sharing what you can. Every little bit helps. Tell your family and friends. All contributions go straight into production costs, and we have some pretty nifty rewards. Oh, my! Through ten thrilling episodes that reinvent the classic radio adventure serial for the 21st century... We aim to create an audio experience immersing you in a 19th century that never existed. Yes, father. Of airships, Babbage engines, desperate fights, hairbreadth escapes, and other terribly exciting moments with some awfully pleasant people. To be a part of this project, head over to Hatchfund at bit.ly slash 2CBYXJM. Oh, Albert, you're not a thing. We are much amused. So today we're going to talk about The Magnificent Seven, the 2016 remake. Uh, First off, regarding spoilers. This is a typical old-school western full of classic... Outer tropes. Yep, no, not a lot of surprises. Yeah, we're not going to go deep into the plot, so we doubt we're going to spoil much unless you've never seen or read a Western ever in your life. <laughs> uh, that said, proceed at your own risk. I also think there's far too much hysteria over spoilers these days. You don't get a safe room, sorry. Yeah. But I digress. So, well, the first thing you talk about in something like this is the story um, what um, let's give our report on the story and what we think about it well I think it's pretty standard stuff of course it it is a remake of a remake mm-hmm. um, but you know it's misfits hired to protect the town from Cossacks pretty much <laughs> you know the down part is there were lots and lots of Cossacks in this one uh, Cossacks or orcs or whatever you want to call them uh, in, in movies like Rio Bravo or High Noon from the 1950s, you had a few bad guys. 
and the whole the whole shoot 'em up was you know pretty intense and just a few individuals shooting it out and missing a lot mm-hmm. um this one i mean these orcs die real easy just like in lord of the rings and whatnot you hit them once and down they go and they die um there's you know the the heroes die really hard you have to shoot them 30 times before they die the orcs die with one shot there's no gut shot guy crying out for water or his mother there's no limb shot guys hobbling off uh into the barn and of course you've got this gatling gun that is rather comprehensive in its abilities yeah it has definitely has a good guy seeking bullets (laughs) (laughs) yeah exactly they weren't that great i mean they were they were nice but they don't lay down an infinite field of fire well exactly no machine gun does it's like they're pretty they've got a fairly limited field of what they hit in any specific time it's not and you hit this thing over oh, here, this building, and the next yeah. building, and then stuff. With- and also, they, we, twenty first century people are used to a machine gun going pretty rapidly. And if you don't want your gat to jam, you can't go as fast as right. they had it go as they as they did the sound for it. As right, they, they fully did at a pretty rapid rate in this movie. And in re, in real life, having actually fired them, yes. it's more of a. Tuck, 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 not ba da 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 Exactly, yeah. If you go too fast, literally it does jam. Yeah, it can only, it's a little gravity feed, very simple construction, and it can only do so much. Yep. There's some cool stuff in there. Denzel Washington's character seems to be a pretty interesting combination of some actual historical figures. Yeah. Bass Reeves, who was a former slave and really was a deputy marshal for Indian Territory. Of the period out of uh, Fort Smith, Arkansas, and the hanging judge Isaac Parker. I definitely have a link to him in the show notes. I, when I pulled it up, I was like, "Oh, yeah, they totally patterned him after this oh, yeah. guy. Even looks like him." Yeah, exactly. Uh, and then also Jesse Chisholm—that's where the name comes from. Mm-hmm. Jesse Chisholm was a mixed white Cherokee African who scouted out the Chisholm Trail, and a well-known frontiersman of the period. Yeah. No, I I thought it was I thought it was good. It's a it's a standard solid old school western. It's like a good Louis L'Amour type story. It they they really tried to not be too PC. They although they um, they did show that the with their casting that the Wild West wasn't just full of white guys. Right. They they had there were all these different people from different racial backgrounds and different demographics, right. and yet it didn't feel like they were trying to check the diversity box right boxes right because there really were lots of yeah. of uh, Mexican and um, yeah. uh, and black cowboys and you know then Chinese and whatnot all out all throughout the West. Uh, one of the, and I say Mexican because they weren't Hispanics they were actually from Mexico or Mexican descent they weren't from Guatemala or South America. Except now in California, in the minefields, they actually were some Chileans and Peruvians. But anyway, most of the cowboys were from Mexico. Anyway, but the diversity box that was all checked was uh, legitimate. Yeah, no, it's um, it was it was good. There weren't any giant character arcs. If you're going to this for a deep character study, you're not going to get it. It's it's a again a solid standard western. Um, they don't go into anything super deep. 
the bad guy was, a, I thought the bad guy was a little over the top. There was a little bit of chewing of the scenery. Yeah, he came really close to twirling that mustache. But you know what? And so did his henchmen, too. Yeah, oh yeah, everybody was kind of over the top there. But I tell you what, there wasn't a flat performance from anybody. No. <laughs> you know, good or bad. I thought Vince D'Onofrio was a real standout as the mountain man guy. Uh, Jack Horn, I, I like him in everything, and he... I've heard it said by other podcasters that, oh, he always kind of plays the same character. And I would beg to differ. I don't think he does. I, you know, you are who you are. And this has been, this kind of criticism has been leveled at actors like Harrison Ford and um, Bruce Willis. John Wayne. John Wayne. Yeah, they always play the same guy. I think John Wayne, that's more of a legitimate thing. Although if you really go back and you watch his movies no, it's subtle. He, mm-hmm. He's not over the top. He's not a mustache twirler no. or a scene chewer. None of these guys are. But I really, I like, really liked Vince D'Onofrio's performance, um, especially in um, his last scene. I there's a reason they let the camera linger on him. Just amazing. Just as from, from one, an actor looking at an actor's performance, I, I'm in awe. Uh, I also appreciated the fact that they included somebody with PTSD. They, there's a Civil War vet who has obvious PTSD, and and it's never over the top. And they don't sit down sit down and have a big expository moment about it or anything. But it's just understood that, that he's dealing with this, and it be, it becomes a little bit of a minor plot point at one point. And similarly, uh, in the in the original movie, the Yul Brynner version a character also right robert vaughn's he, character. he bails because in, in, in the original movie it's over money it's like oh i mean we're not here to get treasure no or isn't it no I because, it was he's, because he, his hands are shaken oh so he thin. he bails for a similar reason oh yeah too. yeah he's, he's got okay. ptsd he's the gunfighter and he's got ptsd from so much killing oh, okay but they didn't know what that was in the 50s so it, oh, it was okay. a little Put a little and, and they just write it off to just because of his life of you know killing. Right, he's people. just had enough. His brain can't take anymore. His body can't take yeah. anymore. In this one, they definitely they definitely make it to be from the Civil War. Right, I mean, he, right. He, he's, he's a just, sniper in the Civil that's War. Right, he was a sniper. Yeah. yeah, you know, good job by Ethan Hawke. Really nice. I mean, if this film makes really good box office. His performance is the kind of a role and the kind of a performance that could recharge a, his career, I think, I think mm-hmm. because I think he did a good enough job. I thought it was interesting. He's starting to look like Nick Nolte. <laughs> he is. <laughs> He's like a, he could be a cousin. Yeah, a younger, better looking Nick Nolte. <laughs> so as far as story goes, I gave it a B and it uh, looks like you gave it a B too. Yeah, that's, yeah. So for the setting, uh, it might be in Eastern California or some points east uh, Sacramento is definitely the center of power. It's kind of interesting that they filmed it in New Mexico and Louisiana. Uh, kind of hard to reconcile that, but I. Um, but anyway, they made it all work somehow. Uh, the mining camp was kind of strange. There was no water to get into the sluice boxes, uh, or in fact, any way to get water up to them. Yeah, but, that the whole mine thing was weird to me. I don't understand what they were trying to do with the mine. I. 
it's like it's like they're it's like the director and the set designer and the greens people and the pyro guys. Anyway, none of them had any idea how a mine is supposed to work. I mean, it was constant explosions <laughs> yeah. coming. Out. Why were there constant explosions coming out of the mine? I kept waiting for them to like all run around. Oh, it's a collapse! It's terrible! You know, hundreds have died, and they were acting like that's just normal. That's not how you mine a mine. Well, and I didn't even hear a fire in the hole before these things went off. Of course not. They never set it up. They're just like you know at at these deep mines it's just constant explosions going off night and day like it's a normal thing yeah and the row of sluice boxes next to the river just there like they just got dumped off the prop truck and with no with nobody near them nobody using them it's like are we are we are we tunnel mining or are we sluice mining well there's i mean they can tunnel mine and then bring the dirt out and sluice it but there's no water going down the sluices no they had they nobody bothered to build a sluice system it wouldn't have been that complicated to do. But again, I think it's because they just didn't understand how this all works. And they just said, oh, well, we'll get one of these and one of those. So or didn't it, care. And just, oh, it's yeah. too much money to make that happen. So. so in the end, it just ends up looking like a diorama at Knott's Berry Farm. It just didn't. Only that would probably have been better. <laughs> I think, yeah, I think Knott's Berry Farm probably would have done a better job. Yeah. They... Um, the, also, around the town, they keep talking about how these are simple farmers. These are all farmers. Well, then why are they in town? Yeah, farmers don't live there? in town. The farmers live on their farms. And, I mean, like you say, is this, is this Europe? Is this Central Europe? Are we all in the Middle Ages? Are we? <laughs> Do we all live in a town and go out to our farms? Right, yeah. yeah it was really weird. Americans and, don't work that way. And all the wide shots until the very, very end of the movie, they don't, you don't see any cultivation. There's no there's no sign of any kind of cultivation around that town. It's, it just looks like a really nice set in the middle of a field and in the middle of a desert. In the middle of a desert, yeah. And <laughs> which it kind of is. And it was a nice set, but mm-hmm. you know what? This is the day modern era of CG. They could have CG'd some really nice looking farmy stuff around that town, and they never did. So again, it just kind of takes you out of the story. When it doesn't look real, I mean, most people aren't going to notice that stuff, I guess. But I, and I also found that they talk about Sacramento and they talk like it's supposed to be California, but none of that scene, very little of that scenery, looked like California to me. No, if it's supposed to be somewhere like Grass Valley or Auburn or whatever like that, nope. Uh, nope. no way, no. no way, not buying it. For it's a supposed minute. to be. Maybe Mono Lake? Well, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> you might get there. I mean, there was some beautiful scenery that looked like, you know, Monument Valley or something. And I mean, yeah, that's iconic and westerny, but it ain't California. No. You know, again, maybe it's not supposed to be California. I don't know. Yeah. But uh, they do mention Sacramento a lot, so we have to sort of assume that that's, uh, mm-hmm. you know, he's there doing, the bad guy's there doing uh, nefarious business with politicians. Yeah, so I, as far as the setting goes, I gave it a C. I mean, it's not terrible it, if you just want to call it generic Western scenery and setting. But I think they, in this day and age, with that this kind of high-toned cast, I think they could have done them better service with better sets. and and uh, Now, what's kind of neat stuff. in the... First part, though, where he, he meets up with Ethan Hawke. Um, he's, Ethan Hawke's getting a shave in mm. a tent. Yes. Uh, in, you know, in a big tent. You know, that's where the, the, the mm-hmm. gambling hell is and barbershop. And that, that was very common in frontier towns. You didn't, the first thing you build maybe is not going to be a whole stick built structure. You build, you put up a big old wall tent and you might have like a little half wall at the bottom that's solid. Mm-hmm. And and the tent is supported by, by post and beam but it's definitely canvas. And that that was so that was a nice touch. Yeah, that was that was pretty cool. 
Well, as, yeah. As far as the props, the guns this goes. Is, this is the fun part. Yeah, I give these guys an A plus on this. The whoever the prop master was did a really, really top notch job. I mean, not just on the guns. I mean, like the cards that. Um, Chris Pratt mm-hmm. is carrying our period yep. cards. Yep. They don't have numbers on them. They didn't put numbers nope. on them yet. Uh, of course, there are lots and lots of Colt single action armies. Um, I mean, that's just a given. I thought it was kind of cool that Chris Pratt's character had a cut down one. It's obviously, to me at least, cut down from a seven and a half inch barrel to a five inch barrel, which was not uncommon. Um, and no front sight. I <laughs> didn't bother putting a front sight back on it. Uh he does mention that one of the characters with the full-length barrels said, are you, you former army or something? Uh, well, no. And as we mentioned in Gordon's gun closet last week, um, it was so common for soldiers to steal them when they deserted and sell them that virtually everybody had a cavalry sure. <laughs> colt. But they also had a lot of other stuff. It wasn't just colt single actions like in the old westerns. Uh, there were the Colt conversions from Cap and Ball. There were the what they call the seventy-two open tops. Um, there were Smith and Wessons, like Smith and Wesson Schofield. I saw at least one of those. A, a, a bulldog, which Chris Pratt's character carries, one of the forty-four British bulldogs, uh, and a baby Russian that the bad guy has. That's kind of cool too. There were a lot of good rifles as well. There were the the 66 and 73 model Winchesters, the 66 having the brass frame and the mm. uh, 73s having the iron frame. There were Spencer rifles and carbines, not just the carbines, but also the, the rifles. I thought that was pretty cool. Trap doors galore, the old Springfield trap doors. And I even saw a Remington rolling block. Uh, and it was kind of cool. There was even a couple of cap and ball Remingtons in the horse charge, which I thought was completely legitimate. Actually, the farmers should be, should have had those. Yeah. But at least, I mean, with the Spencers and stuff, that you know, old Civil War surplus, that's that's very legitimate. You know, what you don't want to see in a movie like this is everybody having the same guns, right? Because that's what props supplied us with, and and, right. a, and a good and a good prop person on something like this knows to not give everybody. This. And it's hard to get all the same thing for one thing, but it also looks dumb. It looks goofy, yeah. Uh, I thought it was kind of cool though that the. The guys I saw with the cap and balls were doing the horse charge, and so they probably got some reenactors who weren't going to be really shooting and just, eh, carry your own. So who knows? Uh, I don't know of anybody personally who was involved in that part, but um, anyway, who knows? It was kind of cool, though. Also, the Gatling, that's a good period piece. Mm-hmm. That's a very good period piece in 4570 or maybe 5070. I'm guessing 4570. Um, and they even had the proper magazine, the straight magazine and stuff. It was, it was well done. They really did a good job. Yeah, I didn't see anybody listed as armorer, at least not on IMDb. And it, I might have missed it in the, in the credit crawl at the end. It's, yeah, it's funny. I didn't see anyone listed as armorer. Just there's a weapons handler chart, uh, and a second unit armorer, neither of whom I recognize name-wise. But, yeah. yeah, usually you have an armorer, so I'm not sure. Uh, something got lost in translation there on Internet Movie Database. But I think – but whoever they had as whoever the armorer did it, it was good. obviously had a clue because there were a lot of nice – a lot of nice – guns in this and i think what is interesting too that you guys might be interested in uh, or find noteworthy is this requires a lot of different blanks 
Oh, yeah. One reason that a lot of movies like to have the same types of guns is because it simplifies the blank situation. Mm -hmm. And with all these different guns and all these different calibers, you need a lot of different blanks, and you got to make sure that the right blanks get to the right guy and the right gun. So um, anyway, that's pretty good. You know, it's a logistical thing that you know shows that's why armies try to get all the same calibers for their weapons you know and yes you can do cg muzzle blasts and have people fake firing but i have never seen it done where it doesn't look fake i it's you can spot it yeah it's just it's bad for one thing it's hard to it's hard to mime the recoil on a piece like that yeah, it really is and then and when and if you do mime recoil then your cgi guy is going to come and find you and hit you in the head with a shovel because now he really has to chase that muzzle to line everything <laughs> up so i'm guessing i don't know but yeah well let's let's uh go to the saddest part of our review before we go any further and that is costumes and to some degree hair uh, I, the costume designer, I had to look her up, him, him or her up when I got home. It turns out it's a woman, Sharon Davis. Um, I'm sure she's a wonderful costume designer. I looked at her credits and she mostly does modern day stuff. She does not do historicals and it really shows. She did Django Unchained, was it a couple of years ago? I haven't seen Django, so I don't know if it's as bad as this or not, or not but it was just inexcusably bad all around with very few exceptions. I was it was so bad that it just kept pulling me right out of the story. I was like I, I it was terrible. It, it and every time I saw something appalling, it just pulled me right out of the moment and and it was hard for me to just say, "Okay, calm down, just follow the story. Calm down." It was it was hard. There was a lot of ridiculous stuff. Uh I could go on for days, but let's just start with, you know, on extras, you always expect that the principals to have the best wardrobe and hair and then the extras they just put whatever on them but it was kind of bad all around but when you're panning across a field of extras and something in a crowd jumps out at you you know it's bad like zippers zippers on the backs of these women's dresses I mean obvious zippers it was terrible and the our our token Mexican in our in our Mm -hmm. seven guys his leather vest was straight out of Wilson's leather store at the mall it was bad which is really sad because I mean even in the 60s you had uh, TV mm-hmm. shows like the High Chaparral that had really, really good mm-hmm. stuff yeah, for no their excuse. vaqueros. Yeah. I mean, people know what vaqueros wore. He should have had a cool, like, vaquero jacket oh, and yeah. a nice sash, and he could have been so sexy in his cool Mexican clothes. And no, we'll just take this Wilson's leather vest and throw some concho buttons on it. Oh, yeah. I mean, in the original Magnificent Seven, you have the, the banditos, and they are just so cool mm-hmm. they have the greatest outfits but, yeah that was you know. that was a disservice to the to our token mexican guy i thought that was kind of sad yeah so there was that was bad oh my goodness i could write a book on how bad all the whores were in this <laughs> you want to see good whores you go watch unforgiven what are those prostitutes wearing they're just wearing day dresses that button up the front or button up the back or whatever they're 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 shabby they're shabby calico dresses because they're just prostitutes but they're not outside in their underwear you don't women prostitutes did not hang out on the porch front porch of the whorehouse in their drawers in their corset in their chemise it just was not done they were wouldn't even been running around inside the building that way it, it just wasn't done they would have been wearing maybe shabby 
floozy dresses, but they would have been wearing dresses, not little Miss Kitty costumes. Or it was just it was just really bad. I mean, it was, and they really made it even worse when they're all leaving town and they're still in their underwear getting into the stagecoach. Yeah. I'm sorry, yeah. unless the building is on fire, you're not coming out in your underwear. It was just it was really bad. That's I couldn't. Pretty appalling. It was it was really really lame. There was so much weird hair on the women on the female extras, grown women with these elaborate long braids and looped braids behind. I mean, it looked like Game of Thrones hair. It was nice hair, but it was 21st century. No, it was Renaissance fair braids is what it looked like. It was it was just weird. It was it was inexplicable. And then some some of the women's hair looked like it was from the 1840s and some of it looked like it was from the 1880s. And this was supposed to be late 70s, I think. It was just weird. You know, no petticoats under their skirts. So their skirts just hung there like a drowned rat. It was bad. And then the gun belts on everybody. Everybody wearing their gun belt low on their hips like a cartoon character. Well, at least they weren't Buscadero rigs. Well, they yeah. That, and that's the to the credit of the prop guy, the armorer guy. He didn't provide crap guns and gun leather. So, yeah. But but then they, when the people put them on, they slung them low. But oddly enough, it was not the actual Magnificent Seven. They wore their gun belts high. Yes. They were wearing them right. I, you know, like like so many good actors, I think those guys really tried because they were using their guns and they were trying to be good and handy with them. They probably found out pretty quickly that when you have your gun basically halfway to your knees and you try to draw your your gun, you're going to take the belt right along with it. Or when you start walking or you get on a horse, your gun's going to fall out of <laughs> exactly. the holster. Exactly. When you're on a horse and your gun falls out of the holster, you realize yeah. that it's probably in oh, the wrong yeah. spot. yeah. Maybe I should wear my gun belt a little oh, higher. Who knew? So that was bad. The, the lead female character, who I thought did a lovely job in her part, in her role, I, her hair, again, she had okay hair in her very first scene, and then she just had her hair down, which was really dumb. I, and no hat. And no hat, never wearing a hat. And then they had her in this weird wardrobe, this weird Swiss Miss bodice with <laughs> elastic around the arms eyes. Elastic? I kid you not. And it, low-cut necklines. I mean, She's she, a widow. She's, she's, a, she she's a respectable woman, and she was dressed like the whores should have been dressed like that. And it was it was very strange. It was very strange. Um, you know, the typical guys with no coats on, just men running around in shirt sleeve. Mostly they were in vests, at yeah. least, which is at least nominally acceptable. But still. Even in that in the gun battle at the end, you've got the bad guys charging in on their horses and half of them aren't wearing coats. Now, I do understand that it was super hot on this set, on this location. Mm. They were all dying of the heat. But the thing is... You put your coat on for your scene, and when they yell cut, you can take it off. You're only on camera for a couple minutes at a time. I've worn a lot of wool and a lot of hot places on film. Mm -hmm. You tough it out. Yeah, you just just (laughs) deal. Yeah, and then long hair on the men. Long hair on the men. This is a real pet peeve. Uh, Unless they were a (sighs) scout type. Or, you know, unless you're Wild Bill Hickok or Buffalo Bill Cody, you did not have hair. Commodore Perry Owens. Right. You didn't have (laughs) hair down past your chin or past your ears, even. Yeah. So, overall, my rating was a D. It wasn't as bad as an F, but I it just the whole thing looked like community theater meets seventies TV western. It, it was sad because I ex- I expected better from a high caliber cast like this in a big budget production. So that was too bad. Okay, that was the bad. Oh, we're doing the good, the bad, and the ugly. Okay, the next thing, uh, technical stuff like camera work and special effects and whatnot. Boy, it was well done. Yeah, it was very. It wasn't just competent; it was really well done. Mm-hmm. They uh, 
cinematographer obviously knew exactly what he was doing and was given full reign to do it. Yeah, I, I, I don't think it's as big. It's not Lawrence of Arabia, but I tell you what, the good, good solid cinematography, it made good use of the landscape. There were a couple of jib shots of, you know, these flying boom jib shots in town where they would kind of swoop up or swoop down or swoop into a main character that really screamed spaghetti western to me. And I think that was probably deliberate on the DP's um, part. And I thought it was really nice. I, I gave it a solid B for for visuals. I gave it an A just because it just looked nice. Yeah, it did. It looked really nice. Next up, Wranglers and Stunts. Very nice horse work. Uh, it was very impressive. As you know, we'll get into that in a minute. But I do want to also mention that the saddlery, which Wranglers get to provide, was all over the map. At least there was no obvious obvious 1940s and later saddles on there. But um, they were, you know, more or less 19th century. But right off the top, I saw a really nice high-back cowboy rig from probably about 1910. So a little late. A little bit late. Only about 40 years late. Uh, prominently displayed on a horse with no rider. So you can really see it. The main characters, though, they all had some pretty nice rigs. Uh, Ethan Hawke's character rode a nice Hope saddle. Which is significant because... Because he was a Confederate and that was mm-hmm. and a Texan and whatnot. Mm-hmm. I assume he's a Texan. Anyway, he's a that's, Confederate. That's a good Southern gentleman kind of saddle. Absolutely. Um, the others had some... seemed to have good saddles. Uh, the Comanche rode bareback, as well he should. And, uh, I mean, I've seen plenty of them... You know, there's the Indian, and he's got a Western saddle with a blanket over it right. to look like he's not using a saddle. Yeah. So they did a good job on this. Yeah, there, and um, some really nice stunts. Very nice stunts. There was only one landing, you know, somebody falling off a roof that I caught where they actually, you could tell they had obviously prepared a soft landing for him, and they really should have cut away on that. But really really nice solid stunt work there was some kind of over the top murders right in the at the top of the show establishing our bad guy as a bad guy in case you didn't catch that he was the bad guy and it, just some very i mean it, it was really really over the top it's straight out of the postman yeah but <laughs> you know directorial choice um but i do agree with the horse stuff Really nice horses. Oh, man. Really well-trained horses. I mean, Dead just... Dead broke horses. Yeah. Really beautiful, beautiful horses. It was also nice that, as far as I could tell, all of the talent were pretty decent riders. Somebody took those guys out and showed them how to ride. Yep. Um, somebody with a fairly large stick to convince them to put their hands where they're supposed to be. Yep. And yeah, uh, yelled nice, at them a lot. Yep. Nice loose reins. Their heels were down. Nobody was yanking their horses' heads around. I hate that. When you see that in a movie where someone says, well, I gotta go, and they yank their horse's head around to turn them around and leave, that is so evil. You do not do that to your horse. You do that with your leg, not with your hands. Um, yeah, real horsemen, you barely see the reins yep, move. Yep, It's really, really nice. Um, also, nobody was tying up their horse to the hitching post by the reins, right. which you do not, do not do. You use the lead rope, not the reins. Yeah, the Mongols actually would execute you if you even led them by the reins. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, you don't tie a horse it's, up by the reins. It's really hard. You know, they got a big chunk of iron in their mouth. You don't, you know. 
So yeah, that's that's a real pet peeve of mine. Didn't see any of that. There was the usual amount of everybody galloping everywhere all the time, which you don't do because it's hard on the horses. But I, I can understand when you're telling a story that gives a sense of urgency. So that's an artistic choice. In real life, you wouldn't do it. So I I gave the horse work an, a solid A. No, they probably should have, after the Gatling guns blasted away at the town, they should have had dozens and dozens of dead horses, too. Yeah. Uh, horses are much bigger targets than people, and they tend to be casualties before people are. Yeah. And But, of course, oh, my gosh, we can't show that. Yeah, that would have been too sad. And, in fact, I even thought of that when I was when I was watching there, there are a couple of scenes where the bad guys are coming and they've got all these mules penned up right on the edge right. of town. It's like, who owns these mules? Why didn't they put them somewhere safe? Cause they're all going to get shot up. But, um, that's just me thinking the music music was good. It was nice. It was, it was, it was, it was good. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I didn't really start enjoying it until the very end though. For obvious reasons. Yeah. The, what happened here was, James Horner was hired, contracted to do the music for this. He passed away uh, last year or the year before. So it was handed over to Simon Franklin to complete. So I'm sure quite a bit of it had been written in the themes established by James Horner. Also, there's, there are, and there's an obvious intent there to evoke the, the music from the, the Bernstein score for the original Magnificent Seven, which is very iconic. And but to try and do that without being imitative or to seem, you know, to sound like you're copying too much. So I thought they did a good job. I thought they did a good job doing that. Now, towards the end, like Gordon says, they start sneaking in a few bars from that original score in the last few scenes. And I heard it and I thought, oh, well, that was really nice. And oh, nice. I thought that was a nice homage and very good, you know, golf clap. And then they start rolling the credits, and they just boom. They just play the original Magnificent Seven. And the score. hair comes up on the back of your yeah. head because this is a really good stuff. If if you've been living under a rock and don't know the music, that's the music I played at the at the top of this segment. And you and you and when you heard it, you went, "Oh yeah, that." So that's and for those of you old enough to remember cigarette commercials uh, on TV. Yeah. it was the Marlboro Man. Yeah, Bernstein actually sold the the. Uh, he licensed the music to Marlboro Cigarettes, and which is, you know, back in the day when the composer, I guess, somehow he, he retained the rights to the yeah. music. A lot of times nowadays when a composer writes for a film, the, the studio owns the rights to the music and the composer just kind of walks away from it. But, yeah, that was – it's pretty – you can't beat it. And I thought, they did, I thought they did a really nice job. I gave the whole score kind of an, an A- because it was a good, solid Western score. It had that Americana feel mm-hmm. to it. With that, with you know, yeah, there's, yeah, yeah. I I gave it a B because I think it it should have had more of the Magnificent Seven in it. Well, there's nothing off the top of my head that I can exactly remember thematically from it. It's not super memorable. Now, I suppose if I watched it again, I would pick up on more things. It's 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 above pedestrian, but not by a whole lot. So, as a bonus section here category, I'm adding in is uh which you're not going to find on a lot of podcasts <laughs> is this section we're going to call people we know because we used to know a lot of people in the industry though the, the farther away we get yeah. from it the fewer people we know on this one it was basically a couple of stunts yeah uh, troy gilbert troy gilbert mm-hmm. uh, who we worked with on several films it's a very good guy and uh really good stuntman the whole gilbert family they're just 
you know, they just have been doing stunts for generations, several generations of them. Yes. And in fact, I think there's a third or fourth generation one involved in this because there yeah. was a Gilbert I didn't recognize. So it was his son or somebody, so son, or, son or, or brother or something. So there were two of them. So there, so we get a two on this one. We only knew two people <laughs> yeah. involved in it. Uh, overall, overall, I gave it a, a B. Yeah, A minus. It's a good e-ticket ride. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's fun. Uh, if you don't spend too much time thinking about it, it's really, really good. Mm-hmm. If you spend too much time thinking about, oh, yeah, where did all these guys come from? And how come uh, how come the newspaper didn't cover the fact that there were 200 guys killed in this <laughs> gunfight? Now, now. I don't want <clears throat> to pick too many nits. I yeah. know. No, I thought it was, it's a solid A for any Western fan. I mean, really, who's if if you're not super familiar with the period and you're and you like westerns, this is a solid A. Not no no, you know the the performances are great. Everybody likes Denzel Washington. Everybody likes Chris Pratt. I know I do. Not a lot to fault. I give it a B for folks who are actually familiar with how, say, mines actually work or what California actually looks like and what people actually wore back then. If you're like me and you just cringed your way through it, it was it was hard. I would like to maybe see it again. We'll probably get it on DVD when it, or Blu-ray when it comes out. And, and I will know what I'm getting into, and I know I will uh, all the, the pitfalls of the terrible costuming and whatnot. I'll just ignore it and enjoy the story for what it is. But, um, yeah, I liked it. I want to actually jump back just a second on one thing. Comparing it to the original, Mm -hmm. one of the fun things I found out was um, Eli Wallach, who, of course, plays the the evil bad bandito, who's actually a likable character Mm -hmm. in the the film. He said that when they were filming, he was assigned these guys that were, you know, he wasn't actually assigned them anyway. Those were these guys who were his bandito chieftains. Because didn't they film in Mexico? They filmed in Mexico. And they took over. They said, you know, they took over from the props guys and the Wranglers said, no, no, this is our job. Uh, they would get his horse ready. Mm-hmm. They would take get his guns from the armorer, bring them to him, get him all rigged yep. out. They and, treated him like a bandit chief. Right. He was El Jefe. Yeah. He was their chief. And they, they, they were, took it very seriously. They were completely method acting. They were typecast. He was Oh, the yeah. Guy. And he loved it. And that is exactly the same thing that we have done mm-hmm. on films, like on The Postman. We took things eh, a little bit you're serious. Always, you're always in the bad guy cavalry. We're always bad guys. And so I thought it was kind of cool that here in the 50s, there were these guys... Mm-hmm. Doing the exact thing, same thing we did in the 90s, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. method acting. In fact, one of the actors said, you guys are the ultimate method actors. You guys just do it. Uh, but it was kind of, it's, it's fun. And mm-hmm. uh, if you watch The Magnificent Seven, the original, there's some really good writing that Eli Wallach is doing. And he said, I really had to work hard because I really wanted to hang on to the horn and mm-hmm. I couldn't put my pistol back in the holster without looking at it. And I felt really embarrassed because all these other guys could, all that my, my, my men, they could do all these things. <laughs> but they still loved him. But they also helped make him look good. They did. Which is what you have always done as a cavalry guy in movies. You go out there and you make that star look good. Make them look like they know what they're doing. Exactly. Well, that's, that's what our job was. Mm-hmm. And that's why I have that cool little painting of uh of uh Bannister Tarleton 
that uh, Jason, Isaacs. Jason Isaacs wrote on said, thanks for making me look so good. Yeah. So that's our job. But I, I just thought it was really cool yeah. that we weren't the only ones. Okay. So there we go. That's our opinion of The Magnificent Seven overall. A good film. It has some artistic pitfalls, but you know yeah. what? That's nitpicking. And uh, that's just my, those are just my hobby horses. Uh, great guns, great saddles, great horses, good acting. Uh, it's a good movie. You should go see it if you haven't seen it. If you have seen it and you disagree with anything we've said, give us a holler. You can find the show notes for this episode at psychon.fm slash thf71. Some of our episodes have supplemental entries over at Gordon's History Ramblings blog. Now, if you enjoy this show, be sure to check out some of the other podcasts over at PsyCon. Jeff Kelly just finished up a three-part series on Alexander Crowley or Crowley on his Sunday morning Coffee with Jeff show. If you've heard the name Alexander Crowley before, but you've never looked into his kind of bizarre life, you here's, should check it out. Here's a nutcase. He was a nutball. Now, the History Files wouldn't be possible without your support. If you'd like to help us defray some of the many costs of producing a show like this, head over to our store at Zazzle and pick up a mug or a t-shirt. Even easier and super helpful to us are ratings and reviews. We really appreciate stars or even a short review at iTunes or wherever you get our shows. It's tangible feedback and it really helps grow the audience. It helps people find us. So think about doing that. Great. Well, thank you very much for joining us yet again. Join us again next week, where we'll have another exciting adventure in The History Files. The History Files is brought to you by Bad Cat Productions, a proud member of the PsyCon Podcast Network. For show notes, more episodes, or to join the conversation on Slack, visit us at psycon.fm slash thf. We also invite you to consider supporting this and our other fine shows by visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com slash where a pledge of even $1 a month will help keep us on the air. Bad cat. Meow. <laughs>